Remember, the issue in this letter that's written to the Galatians, Paul wrote this around 50 to 55 AD, um, to the churches in, in Galatia and Asia Minor. The issue is whether the Gentile believers in that region needed to take up the Jewish law to be right with God. And Paul says emphatically throughout this letter, that's why he writes this letter, no, no, we are right with God on the basis of faith, which is the sign that our lives have been reconstituted through the Christ event, the gift of God, this divine gift given to us without regard to our prior worth. That's his argument about justification in the end of chapter 2 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And as chapter 3 opens, Paul points to the experience of the Christian believers in Galatia, of the Galatians themselves, as evidence that this is, in fact, the case. That this is how God works. So, if you open your Bible with me to Galatians 3, we're going to be in verses 5 through 9 this morning. Just those few verses. But in verse 5, he says this, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith, or by the message received in faith, or the message that elicits faith? And of course, it's a rhetorical question expecting the answer emphatically. It's by faith. So starting in verse 6, Paul launches a direct assault on his opponents. Their erroneous teaching certainly appeals to the story of Scripture, and particularly the story of Abraham. So Paul takes up this story and argues that far from affirming his opponent's position, it affirms his position. What God is now doing in Christ was always God's intention, creating a worldwide family marked out by faith. The question that drives all of chapter 3, and most scholars would agree that chapter 3 of Galatians is the densest forest in the Pauline corpus, But all would say that the question driving this chapter is, who are the children of Abraham? Who are the children of Abraham? Are they those who keep Torah, the Jewish law, or are they those who have faith? Now, let me ask first, ask a few questions. Why does this question matter? Who are the children of Abraham? Why does this matter? What is at stake in being a child of Abraham. And it's this. Abraham was blessed by God in Genesis chapter 12. And this blessing is hugely significant. Abraham's blessing comes on the heels of and is a response, a direct response to the unraveling of humanity and our descent into violence, wickedness, and chaos as narrated for us in what we call the primeval narrative, Genesis 1 through 11. This week, my family and I were on Tremont Street driving our kids to school, um, right about where the Boston Police Headquarters are. And we looked up and saw this bulldozer-like piece of equipment with a long hydraulic arm with what looked like a claw on the end. And the claw was was pushing into what used to be a two-story apartment building. It was being torn down. And I mentioned to my kids, I said, kids, you know, that building was uh, the result of a lot of planning and creativity, and it cost a lot of time and money for it to be um, erected. And now that order and that structure, I don't know if I would call it beauty, but that structure was crumbling into a pile of disordered rubbish. And that's a picture of the power of sin 
in our world and in our lives. Sin is a work of decreation. God spoke out over the primordial chaos and created order and differentiation and unity and harmony and beauty. And the work of sin comes into that ordered and beautiful world and wreaks havoc on all that God has made and creates or decreates that world and sends it back into chaos. And all of us experience this in one way or another. We can't escape its effects in our lives. Every frustration and futility that we experience, every act of injustice and oppression, every falsehood and rivalry is a result of sin. The difficulties we have in our relationships, in our families, between parents and children, between siblings, etc., these are all the result of sin. Sin is the reason that we're not at peace in the world. It's the reason for genocide, for racism, for greed, for mistrust, for extortion, and the list could go on. The blessing of Genesis 12 comes on to this scene of chaos and disorder just after the Tower of Babel story. And it is nothing less than the recreation of the world by the word of God. A word that always brings order out of chaos. This is God's heart for the world. This blessing to Abraham. His heart to bring life and to restore order. And this is the means through which he will do it. Let me pause there for just a moment and say, I, most, of, most Christian denominations and Christian worship services end with what we call the benediction. And I love this aspect of our liturgy. It's a word of blessing from God to his people. We use here at Church of the Cross the benediction from the Kenyan prayer book um, that reflects in some ways our African roots. But there are many types of benedictions that could be used. All of them, though, communicate the fact that God's heart and intention toward the world and his heart and intention toward you is a heart of blessing. God longs to bring life. What does he want for you? What does he want for the world? He does not want you to be crushed and broken down like a demolished building because of the power of sin. He wants you whole and complete and shining with the radiance of his glory as the image bearer of God for all the world to see. That's his heart for you. And we're reminded of this week after week at the end of our worship service. This is his intent, to remake, to recreate, to bless. That's why this question about who's in the family of Abraham matters so much. To be part of the family, to be part of Abraham's family, is to be part of those who are recipients of the great blessing that undoes the decreation of sin and restores us to our original glory. In Manitou Springs, Colorado, I grew up in Colorado Springs, there is um, a hotel, a luxury accommodation called the Cliff House. But when I was in high school in the mid-90s, it was an abandoned building that had been destroyed by a fire, or partially destroyed by a fire in the early 80s. In its heyday, in the early 20th century, uh, Theodore Roosevelt stayed there, Thomas Edison stayed there, but by the time I was in Colorado Springs, it was just a place for mischievous high schoolers to break in at night and spook ourselves and scare ourselves, and we did. But it was bought in 1997, and it has now been renovated and restored to something of its former glory. It's an award-winning accommodation in Manitou Springs, and it's a place now of life and vitality and beauty. And that's a picture of what those who are children of Abraham are to be. We once had this beautiful glory in, our cre in the cre cre creator's intent for our lives, 
But we were desecrated and demolished by the power of sin. And now, because of the blessing of God, we are restored, brought back to life, and shining with the glory that we were created to have. So, let's ask second. So that's why this blessing, or being a child of the family of Abraham, matters. Well, let's ask the next question then. On what basis does someone become a part of Abraham's family, and thus share in his blessing? Of course, Paul's opponents are arguing that it's, by, it's those who keep the works of the law, who do the works of the law, those who are being circumcised. They're the children of Abraham. But Paul refutes this by returning to the story. So again, in verse 5, he just reminded the Galatians that they have received the life of God by the, the very Spirit of God and the power of God in their midst, not because they've been doing the works of the law, not because they've been living Jewishly, as he would have said um, in earlier in chapter 2, but rather because of the hearing of faith. Because of this message that they've received, they've heard the word of God, the announcement, the proclamation about this man named Jesus, and they've responded to that. It's changed their lives. It's remade their lives. And faith is the evidence of that remaking. And Paul says, look, this that happened with you, Galatians, this is exactly what took place with Abraham himself. So let's go back, he says, to the story. And so he quotes in verse 6, Genesis 15, 6. He says, Just as, just like you Galatians, received God's blessing and life by faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. You Galatians have faith in Jesus Christ and you were justified, made right with God. And now look, Abraham, it was the same with him long ago. He too had faith and God justified him or declared him to be righteous. What, a, what made Abraham right with God was not, as Paul's opponents would have been saying, his, the fact that he was circumcised. Paul, Paul won't even draw attention to Genesis 17 in his argument here. That came after this moment of God's making a covenant with Abraham and ratifying that by Abraham's faith. But what made Abraham right with God was his faith, his trust in the word of God. And we'll come back to this at the end of our time. So Paul concludes in verse 7, Know then, if you look at the text with me, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Greek here is a bit more emphatic. It is, um, know that it is, know that the, then that those of faith, these are the sons of Abraham. These ones, those who have faith. Just like it was with Abraham, Paul says, so it is today. By the expression, those of faith, we should understand those whose identities are rooted in the Christ event, the divine gift, as we saw Paul reflecting at the end of chapter 2. This is what makes them who they are. This is what defines them. And faith in their lives signifies that they've received this gift, not because they were worthy of it, by no means, but because of this great gift that it just is a gift, not calibrated to who they were, and that they, having received that gift, have been forgiven, as we saw last week, in the end of accusation, have been delivered in the end of enslavement, have been given life in the end of disconnection from the God of life. This is who they are. Last weekend, my son and I, uh, after the service was done in the mid-afternoon, were able to go over and take in the final game of the Red Sox at Fenway Park. And uh, we had standing room only tickets in right field. But it's possible that in the sixth inning, uh, we ended up upgrading those tickets to sit about 30 rows behind home plate and watch the rest of the game. And it's possible that while we were sitting there, uh, my son completely oblivious to this fact, that I felt a bit like an imposter not fully comfortable, waiting for somebody to come and say, one of those thousands of Fenway employees to come and say, let me see your tickets. You don't belong here. You don't have the right pass. 
sit where you are. And it, this is a bit like what the teachers in Galatia are saying to the Gentile believers. You don't have the right ticket. You're not in the right place. You don't have the right kind of evidence that you belong. You're not circumcised. You're not walking in accordance with the law that Abraham affirmed, that Abraham received, that Abraham obeyed. And Paul says no. It's faith and faith alone that gives you the right to stand in this, to sit in this seat, to be in this spot, to be declared to be a true son or daughter of Abraham. This is why you belong. And it's the only ticket that you need. And Abraham, the father of all, he's the one who proves this. His own experience shows this. Scripture teaches this. He believed in God and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. Paul, he's not just content with the analogy with Abraham. So in verse 8, he pushes the point further from this story and says that the family of faith has always been meant to include the Gentiles or the nations. So he says, Scripture preached the gospel beforehand. This is verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and now Paul quotes the blessing, Genesis 12, 3. In you shall all the nations be blessed. All the nations of the world, Abraham, they will be blessed in you, through you. And Paul says, this is Scripture preaching the good news beforehand. And in this case, what is the good news? Well, obviously Scripture wasn't speaking explicitly about Jesus as Lord as we would understand the good news today. But what the good news declared there is, is that one day there will be a worldwide family of enjoying the blessing that God was now giving to Abraham out of the chaos and decreation of sin. That one day this blessing would expand to include all the nations of the earth. And there would be a, a community, a worldwide family, marked out by faith, that enjoyed this blessing of new life. This is what it's always pointed to. And Scripture proclaimed this very early on. And now, Paul says to the Galatians that he's writing, and now Paul says to the opponents that he's writing to as well, that day has come in Jesus. That day is here. This blessing has expanded to include not just those who are marked by their Jewish identity, but all those who would believe in Jesus Christ. They're now part of this new family. So he concludes in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed. They're included in the blessing, the reversal of the curse of sin, along with Abraham, the man of faith, or the believer who believed, or the faithful one. Paul says, look, the story that they're appealing to defends my view of the gospel, the true gospel, the one, remember, that came down from heaven through a revelation from Jesus Christ, not the one that anyone made up. This is how God always intended to work. So I want to conclude by asking a third question. So we asked the first question, which was, um, why does this matter? Who is a child of Abraham? And then the second question was, on what basis are you made a child of Abraham? And we saw that this was the basis of faith, which really meant that your life had been remade in the gift of the Christ event. So I want to conclude by asking, what is this faith? What is its texture? We spoke, I spoke a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to pick up a defining feature that is at least under the surface here and that Paul draws out more explicitly in a parallel passage in the book of Romans. When it says in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God, what did it mean? What, what actually happened? It meant that Abraham trusted God I would say nakedly trusted in the word of God. 
God spoke to Abraham a word. Abraham's complaint in Genesis 15 was, Lord, you say you're going to bless me, and through me you're going to bless the nations, but I don't have an heir. Sarah and I haven't been able to have children. And God speaks a word to him in that moment and says, Abraham, you will have an heir of your own. And from him I will give you a multitude as, that numbers more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham believes the word of God. A word about life, into a context of death. A word of something springing up out of a barren land. This is how Paul speaks about this in Romans 4, about Abraham's faith. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This, Paul says, is why his faith was counted him as, to him as righteousness. What was the nature of Abraham's faith? What is the nature of faith at the heart of the Christian life? It was faith in the God of resurrection the God of power, the God who in the preceding verse in Romans 4, Paul defined as the one who, quote, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's the God of life's power over death, over creation, that defines the faith of Abraham. And faith in Christ is exactly the same. It's defined by this affirmation of the resurrection, life-giving power of God at the heart of it all. It's a faith in a God who can work wonders, the God of the impossible. This is the faith of Mary, as we read about in Luke 1, in the, in the God for whom nothing, the angel says, nothing will be impossible. And so she says, let it be done to me, O Lord, according to your word. That is the faith of Abraham in the faith of Mary. You will bring life into a context in which life should not be possible. That's what Mary said. And it is this trust, this placing of our hands into the God of life who can bring something out of nothing that defines Christian faith. This God who can take a barren woman and an old man and make an heir, a great nation, a worldwide family of blessing. In the words of Hebrews, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And our faith is no different. When Paul opens the letter to the Galatians, he points, he bears witness to this defining feature of faith. When he describes the God in whom we believe, How does he do this? He starts his letter, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who what? This is the only reference in the book of Galatians to the resurrection. And God the Father who raised him from the dead. Who is God? God is the God who brings through a word of power life into death, life out of nothing, light into darkness. He creates ex nihilo. 
You are the God who raised him from the dead. And then in chapter 2, when Paul is going through his argument about justification by faith, and when he's clarifying that it's faith and not works of the law, that is the basis on which God declares us righteous or to be his own, he talks about life coming out of death, about the fact that I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but it is now Christ, the one who himself was crucified, but God raised from the dead. That very Jesus who lives in me. I've experienced death and I've been brought back to life, Paul says. This faith at the heart of the Christian life is a faith in the God whose power is a power for resurrection. And Paul says, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we could add, I think, very faithfully to Paul's own thinking here, and who rose again from the dead for me. Into my dead and sin body, the resurrection life of God has been poured out by the gift of God that I did not deserve so that the grave clothes can be unwrapped and I can go free. I can live. Faith is faith in God, the God of resurrection power. And he has brought Jesus to life and he's brought us to new life, though we didn't deserve it in any way. It's a gift. And believing in his power of resurrection means that we can trust this God in all situations and circumstances in our lives. It's this kind of faith, the faith of Abraham, that leads to obedience and to our endurance and to true hope. It was this kind of faith that enabled Abraham in a context that was absolutely and utterly confusing to him to take the child of the promise, Isaac himself, because of the word of God spoken to him to go and offer his son on an altar on a mountain. And the book of Hebrews again says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's what defines Abraham's faith. There is nothing impossible with God. Nothing. And so in the midst of this world and its challenges and struggles and trials and difficulties, I can walk in obedience to him. I can walk and endure in obedience to him because He is capable of doing all things. That's what Christian faith says. Faith, again, looks to the bankruptcy of humanity and says there is no hope here because we have no power for life. And faith looks solely to the God of life as the one who has all power, all value, all authority, and gives us blessing to share in his life. This is the faith that we see in Abraham. It's the faith we see in Mary. It is the faith we see in the Son of God as he yields his spirit to his Father on the cross, confident of God's victory and vindication. And it is the faith that is the truth of our own life as well, that we in Christ have died And we have been raised to new life. It has a power, this God, to recreate and renew that which sin has bound and distorted. This faith has a power to bring life out of the worst of situations. I want to close. I'm sure many of you saw the incredibly moving video from the Dallas courtroom. And I recognize there is a conversation nationally about the forgiveness that Brant Jean offered Amber Geiger, the one who killed his brother. And that that conversation includes really important discussions around 
policing in this nation and brutality against black people in this nation and racism and systemic problems that are real and need to be discussed. And so I want to acknowledge that I'm aware of that broader context. But I must say that in seeing this scene, we see the power of resurrection, the power of the God of life, coming into a scene of death, of lifelessness, and of hopelessness, and arresting everybody who stood in that courtroom with a sense that there was something holy, something otherworldly. And it was through this brother, this brother, um, Brandt, uh, the brother of, of Botham, who had been killed, taking the stand on behalf of the family and then saying, I speak on behalf of myself, but I forgive you for what you've taken from me. And then the incredible, kind of unpredictable reality of the embrace that he asked to give to this white police officer who had killed his brother, who had a record of racist tweets and a racist kind of life, who had no right to receive anything but the punishment that she received, maybe more. And yet in that moment of death and nothingness, here's a servant of the high king, a young man who never looked for the spotlight, certainly never wanted it in this way, whose character and life had clearly been formed by a commitment to follow the God of resurrection, life, and power, and who in that moment speaks of that power, a power that we see kind of coming out of his own heart to speak to the one who took something so precious from him and to say, I desire nothing but the best for you. And I want you to know this Jesus. And I forgive you. And he will too. Our God is a God of power and life, and his life breaks into moments of death and darkness. And this is the definition of our faith. This is what enables us, this is what makes us inheritors of the blessing, sharers of the family of Abraham. And it is a beautiful reality that sustains us and carries us forward in all circumstances of life that is possible for you and for me by the gift of God. Let's be those people, people of this faith, whose lives only make sense because our God can do anything. Our God can bring life into places of death. May he be glorified. Let's pray.